Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And this week, I have the privilege of introducing you to somebody that's new to me, but I'm already falling in love with her story, um, Tashin Paulison. So Tashin, would you like to say hello to everyone? Hello, everyone. Hello, Vicki. Thank you for bringing me onto your show. I really appreciate it. I am so happy to have you now, listeners. It took us a while to get scheduled, and then um, we're recording it now, but it's going to take a while for me to get it out because of my schedule. But I'm really looking forward to, Thassim, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So let's start with what state in the Pacific Northwest you live in. I live in Oregon, Klamath Falls, Oregon. Ah, the beautiful Oregon. And I think we got connected through an author that had already been previously on the podcast, if I remember right. (laughs) Yes, we did. I believe his uh, author name is Mike Salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Mike. We had him on a while ago. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, and I've listened to his podcast. And I was wondering, do you mind if I tell you a funny story about him? No, please do. Okay, so um, obviously, you know, Klamath Falls is a very small town, and everybody knows everybody. So um, my old, old friend, and we used to live next door to each other, buddies for years, years and years. And she mentioned, she knew my book signing was coming up, and she mentioned, and I was talking about Barnes and Noble, etc. She mentioned that. Mike Saltenberger had a book coming out and that it it was going to be carried by Barnes & Noble, but that it was a little bit complicated, but he'd been telling her about it. And I thought, I know who Mike Saltenberger is because we got some dogs from him years ago, puppies. And so I asked my husband and he didn't know how to get a hold of him. So I asked my husband's friend who works at a mill where Mike Saltenberger works. I got his cell phone number and I start sending him text messages and I left voicemails and no response. So I thought, well, obviously he doesn't want to share his information. So I, and the Mike Saltenberger that I'm thinking of is obviously my generation. So now, fast forward, I'm at my book signing, and this gentleman comes up to me, and like, hello, he could be my grandson. He says, hi, um, I'm Mike, and I'd like to buy one of your books. Would you autograph it for me? So I said, yeah, sure, and everything was lovely. And so I said, now, what is your name? And he said, Mike Salt. And he said, would you sign it, you know? put my name in it. And I said, sure. So then he says, well, actually it's Saltenberg. And I looked at him and I said, are you Mike Saltenberg? I said, I have a book at Barnes and Noble. And he said, yes. And I said, oh my God, I've been texting somebody that is twice your age. 
<laughs> and did he ever? You? Did he ever find out that it was his? If he looked it up to see if it, it was, was his grandfather, uncle. Oh. So Mike Saltzweiler, I'm often with his uncle. <laughs> that is a fantastic story. I love it. Well, and, and here's <laughs> the part about the story that I love is that the writers' community is a very small knit community. So, um, you know, we we do all kind of harass each other when we start getting to know each other. We start. <laughs> I think that's a very funny. What I think is funny is that his uncle didn't bother to text you back and say, hey, I think you have the wrong person. <laughs> you would think he'd say, hey, that's my nephew and this is his number or something. Well, that's very funny. Well, thank goodness Mike came to your book signing anyways and you guys connected. That's wonderful. <laughs> and Mike, I'm grateful to Mike. He connected me with you. Yes, yes. And I, like I said, and, and for those of you that are listening that are aspiring authors, I've said it more often than I can count. Um, my big lesson about this podcast is about me learning to put myself out there and meet other authors. And um, yeah. your story right there just showed how the impact because when you meet one author, you never know how that particular meeting might connect you with someone else. So that's fantastic. What a great oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, I like to ask this question, my authors that come on the show, and um, I don't always prepare you for all the questions because I like to ask some stumper questions. Um, so one question, um, as writers, we are told often, you know, we need to be reading a lot. So what is on your reading shelf currently? What are you reading? What am I reading? At the moment, to be perfectly honest, I'm reading about social media. Oh, that's a good thing to read about, especially for an author. <laughs> yes, because I'm, I'm looking, because, you know, I don't have the means uh, to, to travel far and wide to promote my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be using social media. So my reading list now is social media. I've got everything out of the library that I can. I'm reading stuff online. I'm learning terms that I can barely spell. <laughs> That's what's on my reading list right now. The book that I recently read that I was very anxious to read was The President is Missing. Oh, I heard about that book. Yes. It was very, very good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. It's James Patterson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very yeah, good book. I was just saying fantastic. I'll have to add that to my reading list. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Um, but since then, I have totally, I've got to be honest, been distracted. And I'm looking more at learning than enjoyable reading. I basically don't, haven't made myself the time to do it. I did read Mike Salt's book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Fantastic. It was very thought-provoking, very thought-provoking. Yes. And I'll be looking forward to his new book. But um, but no, my reading list right now is work. Oh, and I, and I completely understand that. Um, I have two running lists. One is always dealing with the craft of writing or promotion or, or social media, something like that. And then I try to read a fiction book or a biography to keep me in the creative <laughs> on one side. So. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, do you have, are you writing full time? Is that what you do for a day job or do you work outside or are you t- retired? 
All of the above. I, <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful place to be, I think. <laughs> okay, so let's see. I retired from the state. I was working for the Department of Human Services mm-hmm. and um, did that for years and years, 16 plus years. Uh, I retired from there, then got to my bucket list, did a lot of traveling. Now I am back. Uh, oh, and then in the meantime, of course, I'm working on the book. And we have our own business as well. We have, my husband has a tractor with all the implements. Mm-hmm. So we have our own owner-operator business. I do all the scheduling, marketing, accounts, everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He he operates the tractor. I do everything else. Well, so that's uh, so not really retirement, is it? <laughs> it's, a not, it's a big job. Not really. Not really. I only retired from the state. That's the only place I retired for. Also looking for a job as well, but I don't know when I would get that squeezed in, but I would work on it. Oh, fantastic. And then I've had a lot of requests for a sequel. Mm-hmm. So my sister and I are talking about where do we want this to go kind of thing. We're not mm-hmm. sure yet. Mm-hmm. And and so that brings me to a question around the book that you have published. Um, but first, why, why don't you share with us the title of the book and give us just a teeny little um, synopsis for those that don't have a clue who you are, or what your book is about, because I find it absolutely fascinating. Okay. So the book is called The Princesses of Aikman Road and Impoverished Splendor. I wrote the section that's called The Princesses of Aikman Road, and my older sister wrote Impoverished Splendor. She had written that her section long ago, and was it was a work in progress, if you like. And then I started mine about 20 years ago. And she finally said she was done. But when she was done, there wasn't enough there for a standalone book. And she really wanted it to be published because her section is about people that no longer exist. They were tradesmen that used to come in from the northwest frontier of Pakistan. And they'd come down to the lower part of the country and ply their trade in winter because they were snowbound. And they don't exist anybody anymore. People in Pakistan don't even know who they are. And she wanted it to be recorded. And so I told her, put it in with my book, and then at least it'll be out there. So she agreed. So that's what the book is about. Her book is about them. Mine is more about us three sisters growing up in Lahore, Pakistan in the 50s and 60s. And pretty much covers the time there until we left. What a wonderful, actually, two pieces in uh, part of the history and in the world that many of us Americans don't really know about. So I'm really excited. I do want to read your book because I love anything that has to do with, you know, uh, parts of the culture that we don't understand. (laughs) So I'm very much interested in reading it. Um, So tell us, uh, so the journey of the writing for the two of you, had you always, both of you always written, like written journals? And did you know that this eventually you were going to write a book about your lives? Or is it just, this is how it manifested for you after you've, you know, left Pakistan, grew up and, and you really need to tell the story? 
Well, I think that uh, my sister Marge, she's the one who's my co-author, she and I have always journaled. My middle sister that we called SH, Mm -hmm. she she didn't. She really didn't. She wasn't. She was much more hands-on. She was math genius with science, you name it, the moon, the stars, whatever. She was way above. (laughs) And so actually, um, no, it just just turned out this way uh, when we were kids. She, my sister SH, she was brilliant at everything. She was a brilliant artist. She was good at math. She was good at sports. She was just good at everything. And so Marge and I decided, well, hello, everybody's saying she's, you know, a genius. We need to have our own little thing. Mm-hmm. So we decided, well, what can we do? Well, we weren't good at anything. <laughs> so I decided, okay, I'll be a writer. Marge said, okay, then I'll be an actress. And we decided that's it. She was going to be an actress. I was going to be a writer. (laughs) How it ended up that way. And as it turned out, you know, both of us ended up writing and she didn't act, but (laughs) that's how that came about. It wasn't a plan, but it just kind of drifted into it. Uh, well, I think it's beautiful to write with a sibling or a family member, um, especially when you have a shared experience. Because uh, I, I have I have four siblings, and my husband's an only child, and so when I get together oh, yeah. with my siblings, he doesn't understand the immediate storytelling that we do from our past um, because he doesn't have yeah. siblings. And I, I try to explain to him, and, and I'm like, I don't know if there's any way I could explain to you that there's just this history that you would never understand that only my siblings would. <laughs> it's just one of those interesting exactly. phenomenons. Yeah. So wonderful. So when you're working on this book before you published it, um, how did you, you ladies as co-authors do that? Um, did you read each other's work and did some editing? Did you hire an editor to help you to make it cohesive or is it two separate stories in one book? It is actually two separate stories in one book. And how I did it was um, in the introduction, I mentioned that. And then I have chapter one, which is the princesses of Bakeman road. And then I pass it on to impoverished splendor. And then at her, at the end of her story, then I go back. It's chapter two, and it says, "And now the princesses of Aikman Road continue." Oh, okay, okay. So in the story, when you were young, um, young women, the people that your sister wrote about are people that you would have encountered. So it's almost like they oh, yeah. are in a story inside of your story. Is that kind of how? Absolutely. Okay. Oh yes, yes. Okay, okay. That, that and there's makes- a little bit of an overlap. There is a bit of an overlap. We do talk sometimes about the same people, but, mm-hmm. you know, she has her take on it and I have mine. How fascinating. I think that's a very fascinating concept for a co-author book. So I, I think that's wonderful. Um, so tell me a little bit about the publishing journey. Um, did you go, did you guys go look for an agent? Did you market it, uh, trying to find, um, a publishing house? Are you self-published? How is that a process for you? Well, it's very long, very long. (laughs) So, so she actually sent prior to my being part of it because I was doing my thing. She was doing hers and she found a person. I'm not sure if they were an agent, 
But somebody in Florida that was going to do it for her, and of course they wanted money. And then when she told me about it and I started asking them questions, then they didn't want to respond. So she very um, diplomatically got her material back. She had sent him the originals of everything. Well, so when thank she, goodness you jumped in because who knows where that story would have been. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And then she, oh, I did the same thing. She then sent it all to me. So then I had control of it. Mm-hmm. Then I, because I was working full time and I had a business that mm-hmm. I had created and it was very successful. So I was really swamped and I tried to find a ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. And long story short, and I will make a long story short, <laughs> I thank God she was in a small town. I called after trying to reach her because I paid her. My mistake, but I did pay her. And uh, she never did produce a darn thing. Um, So in trying to get my material back from her, because again, like an idiot, I send her the originals even after telling my sister not to do it. I thought, oh, well, she's on the up and up. She's got, you know, a, a resume. She's got a track record of work that she's done. She should be okay. Um, Naive. Yeah, you could say that. So anyway, but paid her and she was in the wind, but I knew where she lived. And I called the local sheriff's office in her town. And he said, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. She pretends she's an author. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And he said, I'll go have a chat with her and I'll get you your stuff sent back. And like literally within three days, UPS delivered all my stuff back to me. Oh, what a blessing that you had him to help you because I don't think that is the case for everybody. No. I was very fortunate that she was from a small town because it was New York City. I would just have to kiss my money goodbye and all my material. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's more about the material because that that felt more violating than anything. Yeah, because then you've got to literally start from scratch. And, you know, even if you do write something, you you write it out of emotion. Of course you do. And yeah. then you can't bring that back. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's so true. So after all of that, then I just kept plodding away at it. And I kept my sister's material. At that point, we hadn't discussed putting it in my book. At that point, we were still talking about a separate book. Mm-hmm. But w- when I read the rules and then SH pointed out that, hello, a book needs X amount of words. If mm-hmm. you two can't get this, you know, if you can't get this together, you're not, you're not even writing a novella. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she's always the smart one. She just has to have her or in it. And so anyway, <laughs> um, after listening to everything she said, that's when I came up with the idea for Marge. And then I decided to, self-publish because I could not afford to go to a publishing, even a small publishing house, because mm-hmm. they want you to order X amount of books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't order X amount of books and pay for them when I don't even know who's going to buy one other mm-hmm. than a 
hello, no, my parents passed. I can't sell them a copy. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I'd sell it. I didn't have any guarantees there. So I decided to self-publish, go through Amazon because that was the only way to do the deal where you it's print on demand. Yeah. And a lot of authors I have on the show do self-publish through Amazon. And that's why I love to ask the question is because I feel like your journey is so important. Those mistakes that you talk about can be helpful for somebody like me. I'm not published yet and I haven't decided which way I want to go. And that's why I started the podcast. I started asking a lot of authors questions. How did you do this? (laughs) And then I'm like, yeah, wow, this is a lot of information. I don't think I can sit on it all by myself. I should get it out for other people. And so <laughs> here we are. Very, very, very good idea and yeah. very helpful for the rest of us. <laughs> well, we do talk a lot about marketing too. So if you want to go back and listen to some of those podcast episodes, there's currently 70, some of them. Um, so uh, almost every author and I talk about marketing techniques and ideas. So there's plenty to listen to. <laughs> And I will, and I have listened to some of them, but not 70, but I yeah. have listened to a lot of the yeah. podcasts. I oh, have. good. Well, we, I've been a lot listening. of information there. Yes, yes. So tell us what uh, was your inspiration for getting out your story? I, I can imagine being, I mean, this is my own feelings, but I can imagine being from another country, living in the United States, and you have a powerful story about your origins. Um, and maybe being hesitant not to share that because people wouldn't understand. So what was your inspiration? Um, well, questions from my coworkers and friends. Everybody wanted to know about it. And then I realized a lot of people, especially at work, were asking, were interested in the same things. Uh, like, what was it like to be a princess Growing up in, they say castle, it really wasn't a castle, it was just a very, very big house, uh, with a lot of serpents. That seemed to be fascinating for everyone. And I thought, okay, I've answered this question a thousand times. I'm going to write a book. <laughs> That's all there was to it. <laughs> um, I think that was the easiest way out. And then I just started on it and it went from there. That's fantastic. And I do think that would be fascinating to so many people because it is a departure from most of our lives. You know, we we don't really even have princes and princesses if you look at it in that sense, you know, royalty. Yes. We we have we have famous people that are almost royalty in our minds, but they're not yes. true bloodline royalty. And that's that's the part right. that I'm fascinated about. My my whole journey with my writing, I'm writing not about royalty, but I'm writing about the Queen Victoria era. And um, I've always been fascinated with the royal bloodline and all of, you know, how that operates and how that works. So I think that's one part of it that is intriguing to us that would have no clue. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's because America was never allowed to have a, a royal line. And as a country, I mean, every other country has it, whether they get, get you know, their heads chopped off, guillotined or whatever else. They still have had them. But America, being a new country, never, ever did. Yeah, yeah, we didn't. Yeah. Well, fascinating. And so I think that's the fascination. So let's, and, and it's foreign to us in that sense, I think so too. So. Completely. Um, well, let's do this. Let's set you up for your reading because I'm very interested to hearing it. Um, so tell us again the title or the section that you're going to read from. And I'm going to sit back and listen to you read. And then when you're done, I'll take us out of the podcast. 
Okay, sounds good. Well, um, let me see. The title of the book, again, is The Princesses of Aikman Road and Impoverished Splendor. I'm going to read a portion of, I believe it's chapter one. And I won't read the whole thing. This is a lot of it. Uh, and then I'll let you know when I come to the end of my section. Sounds wonderful. Okay. So, okay. Our house was set on a corner lot in a neighborhood full of trees. Eucalyptus, golden rain trees, and others I never learned the names of. The area was called GOR Estates for government officers' residences. Most of the houses were owned by the government, and so whoever was in power usually dictated who occupied the houses. The ministers were provided with government cars, and I loved to watch them go by. Depending on which country had provided aid, the cars would be British, German, or American. I always loved cars, and even at an early age could recognize the brand and sometimes the model as well. Some of the houses were privately owned. Our house and that of our neighbor to the west is Sark Haig. To the house, sorry, the house to the east was owned by an Indian man. I remember he either owned or edited a daily newspaper, the Civil and Military Gazette. When we were very young, we had an opportunity to play with his daughter, Shirley, a few times. She taught us to eat fresh limes off the tree with salt, pepper, and red chili powder. We would go to the kitchen at her house or ours, and we never walked through the house for this, for this in case someone asked us where we were going and why. We always walked around the house to the outside kitchen door, and there we would ask the cook to give us the spices in a small piece of paper and then make our way to a quiet spot on the lawn out of sight of our parents and enjoy the forbidden snack. We were not at all sure why it was against the rules. Daddy had some strange rules and stranger ideas that he did not always share with us. Later, we did learn that this particular rule had some merit as the acid in fresh lime can damage the enamel on a person's teeth and lead to cavities. We did eventually get caught, or one of the servants told Daddy, which put an end to that. Years later, when a concerned relative insisted that we three should go to a dentist, the relative and the dentist were shocked to find that our teeth were perfect in every way and there was not one cavity amongst the three of us. We were never allowed to eat sweets either, or very rarely, which certainly helped. I am not sure what happened with Shirley's father, but I know he had to leave in a hurry, and then the house was empty for the rest of our years there. The newspaper ceased to exist as well. The house was taken over and used occasionally by the civil defense. I remember us three watching a mock fire and rescue from one of our terraces. I recall that the rescue involved a lady in a burqa, and we were fascinated to learn that, in fact, it was a man wearing trousers and a shirt underneath the burqa. We three thought that was very odd, but Daddy explained that the fire department did not employ women, so they had to make do with what was available. Our huge front lawn was where we spent most of our days and in the summer, our nights. 
It was cooler outside than in. And every evening, the servants would bring out the summer bed. These were made of lightweight wooden frames on sturdy but light wooden legs. The beds had a crisscross of wide, heavy tape that went from one end of each frame to the other and supported a thin mattress and sheet. After the servants had made up our beds outside, they would take the flit gun and spray liberally all around the area to keep the mosquitoes away. For the most part, it worked. However, if it turns out in the future that one of us has some terrible disease, I'm sure we can sue someone as the flit gun contained DDT. The lawn was enclosed by a brick wall, most of which was not visible from the inside. A wild wild orange hedge with three-inch horns went from the corner of the Ekman Road gate almost all the way to the Danefall Lane gate. Where it stopped, there were date palm trees that produced a lot of fruit, which never matured because all the trees were the same sex. Same with mango trees, except that one can make chutney with green mangoes. Facing out toward the lawn to the northeast, there was a huge silk cotton tree. It, too, had thorns on the trunk, but only short, fat ones. The person soon learned not to lean up against that tree. The flowers were huge, and once they were done blooming, they turned these into these pods full of silky cotton and, you guessed it, bull weevils. The cotton also had large black seeds in it. I'm sure it could be used for something, but first you would have to get rid of the bugs and then the seeds, and if labor was free, I suppose it would be a good deal. To the northwest, there was a a tree common in Hindu gardens. It was originally three trees in one. There is a religious reason for this, but as it was of Hindu origin, the Mali, which is a gardener, who was a Christian, had no issue with getting rid of the one tree when it died. There was a hole in the trunk of one of the remaining two trees, and some kind of insect used to live in there. Being the naughty and bored little children that we were, we would poke at it until it got screeching mad and flew out of there. And it did screech. Then we would run for our lives, terrified. In fairness to Marge, I have to say she never did prod the poor insect. Mostly it was SH, and then occasionally I would either be coerced into doing it, or I would do it to show that I was as brave as SH. This tree was called the big tree because it was big. We used it a lot for playing hide and seek. And once we saw our parents behind the tree in broad daylight, and we thought they were hiding from us playing hide and seek. I do not doubt they were playing hide and seek, but I really cannot imagine they intended for us to catch them at it. We had three German trees. This is a fruit tree that I think is related to the black cherry. I have no proof but the leaves are the same shape, though larger. The trunk is the same texture, and although most people think that cherries are sweet, they have an underlying hint of astringency. The German had this also. And, of course, both turn the tongue purple and clothes, especially your favorite white ones. I have eaten really good Bing cherries that come very close to the flavor of a German. Because the German... Trees produced a lot of fruit. Daddy would sell the harvest every year, and we would always get as much as we wanted without having to climb the trees and get it for ourselves. The fruit pickers had tall, skinny ladders that were terribly unsteady, 
but they shinned up and down them with no fear. They wore a garb that had a large pouch by their waist, and they would not come down until this was full. When the German harvesters were there, we three had to play elsewhere because A, they were men, and B, strangers. But children will use their ingenuity to find a way to break the rules. We would watch them work from a distance and were rewarded with their acrobatics failing when someone lost their footing or a ladder broke. Over the years, Daddy made many changes to the house and to the lawn. Originally, there were pink stone steps that went from the driveway down onto the lawn. Many years later, he had a terrace built over the steps that went out on the lawn in a T-shape. A jacaranda tree was planted on one corner, and to the west, a rose garden. To the east, there was a row of long-established trees. The umbrella tree, a small tree that we liked to climb when we were really small, and Daddy led us because it was close enough to the ground that had we fallen out of it, we would not have been hurt. It was called the umbrella tree because its canopy was shaped like an umbrella. We never did learn its proper name. It was an amazing tree in that it would not flower for months, and then suddenly it would be full of small white flowers. Within hours of this, it would rain, but a little while before that happened, before there was even a cloud in the sky, we could actually smell rain in the air. In Lahore, rain was always welcome. I think this was S.H. Street. Next to that, a bottle brush tree. For those who do not know the tree, it has blooms that look like a red bottle brush. It bloomed in October, so it was Marge's tree, as her birthday was in October. Then a false name. A tall tree with dark wood and small leaves. And when in bloom, tons of tiny, pale, purple and brown flowers that smelled divine. This was my tree. And next to that, the delicate crepe myrtle with silver gray bark, pale green leaves and a profusion of pink flowers that outshone everything else in the garden when it was in bloom. I am sure this tree was from some mythical world because it was so different from all the other trees and seemed to have an inner light. To the west, right by the steps, there was a huge bush called Ratkirani, Queen of the Night. It was by far the most heavily scented bloom in the garden. According to the servants, snakes lived under it. It only bloomed at night, so it did not compete with the jasmine that bloomed at dawn. We three used to go and pick off the jasmine buds and take them to Daddy in the early morning. He loved that and would always give us one of his fine linen hankies ahead of time to put them in. Jasmine was probably the most popular flower in Pakistan. Vendors selling garlands and bracelets of jasmine buds were easily found on a summer evening, and we always appreciated it when one of Daddy's friends would buy sugar and ask three garlands or bracelets. I do not recall ever getting both at the same time, though, of course, sugar did. We had two hibiscus shrubs and one Persian rose. What a beautiful flower that was. It reminded me of Arthur Rackham's illustration with Beauty's father and the beast near the roses. I truly believe that heat and humidity bring out the scent of flowers and all things that grow in the earth. You could smell the sweet bees and the roses from the front porch. And even in November, when it had cooled down considerably, you could smell the chrysanthemums 
that lined the driveway in red clay pots. I remember one year, it was in early April, and we went for a drive. We had the car windows rolled down and could smell flowers of every type as we drove down the road. We savored every second. We never had to be told to stop and smell the roses. Even now, having inhaled a bug or two in my time, I still smell flowers whenever I'm close enough to them to do so. Possibly because when we were children, we had a lot of time on our hands, we and we sampled the leaves, the nectar of flowers, clover, and different kinds of grass. No, not marijuana. Once we three were watching Fascinated as one of Daddy's sister, sisters was making puns, and she cheekily offered us a plain leaf. She was shocked when we not only willingly took a small piece each, but proceeded to chew and discuss which leaf in our garden most closely matched the flavor of the pond leaf. She thought we were quite mad. We also knew the difference between the leaves of the trees that were on our lawn and could identify them by the shape and color. Once we made the mistake of telling Daddy that we were bored and he had us pick up every leaf on the lawn. All the trees on the lawn were deciduous. Lesson learned. Lining the driveway to the west was a gardenia hedge that in summer evenings was full of fireflies. Even to this day, I can see it in my mind without even closing my eyes. It was hard to decide whether there were more stars in the sky or fireflies in the garden. Oh, Tennessee, I am absolutely in love with that description of your front garden and your garden in your house. I'm a big flower fan myself. So I wish I wish I could smell all of it. <laughs> what what a, what a beautiful growing up experience to have all of that. And and I think it's absolutely wonderful that you remember to such detail the trees and the leaves and 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 that your dad made you pick up leaves when you guys were bored. That is just a wonderful story. <laughs> so, thank, you. thank you so much. I am curious to hear more about your growing up years in that home. Um, so before we go, what is one thing you would like to share with listeners or um, aspiring authors about your journey to telling this story? What's a, a tip or um, inspiration you'd like to share with us? Well, I know it seems like a cliche, but everybody has a story in them. They really do. Everybody does. I know um, I have a very close friend, very, very close friend, who says that I'm amazing because I wrote a book. And I said, well, I've heard a little bit about your past, the stories you've told me. And I find that a lot more amazing than anything I've done. Mm. And... She thought about it and said, well, maybe, but I don't think I could write. But that's the trick. You have to. You just have to write it down. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be grammatically correct. Just write down your memories. Write down your thoughts. Um, And if you are a fan of a particular genre, make up stories. You don't have to show them to the public mm-hmm. until you're ready to. Mm-hmm. But you have 
to, you have to start writing and you have to go on writing and don't critique yourself. Just keep doing it. Thank you. Thank you. I needed to hear that today. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually the time will come when you can put it all together, but you just got to keep on doing it. And everybody has a very, very, very interesting story to tell. Everybody does. They don't have to come from a faraway place or a different place or anything. Well, bravo. Thank you for that advice. And so listeners, if you're out there thinking that you don't have a story to tell, um, we beg to differ with you. So start writing it. And, and you like, like, like Finistine <laughs> said, you don't have to let anybody look at it for over probably 10 years. I didn't even tell anybody I was writing. My husband and my kids were the only ones that knew. And so it it's okay to let yourself have that time to write. And, and it's most important just to get the stories out. So, well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Definitely get on uh, the show notes because we'll have contact information so you can find the book and you can keep reading um, about the story. And then if you do, definitely contact Tennessee and let her know that you heard her on the podcast. And thank you so much for coming. So let me ask you one last question. Do you have any more books in the works that you're planning on writing? I'm toying with that idea. I got to talk to my sister more about how it's going to go if she wants to put something in there or whether I should do it on my own, mm-hmm. you know, because once we got to London, you know, we all went our separate ways in mm-hmm. our different directions. So yeah, not sure yet. Well, I think you, there will be a sequel, but. If there is, I'm inviting you to come on the podcast. And if your sister would like to join us, we can manage that as well. I'm sure we can figure it out. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Vicki. I really appreciate it so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.